And uh, welcome once again to the uh, lockdown version of Swing Thoughts. Always great to be with you on TSN 1150 in Hamilton and, of course, around the world. Uh, This golf podcast going into its fourth year, which in the world of podcasting, uh, Tim O'Connor, that's like, we're ancient. (laughs) That was the word I was going for. No, for sure. I'm not beside the fact that our combined ages are like 120 or something, but uh, it's Tim O'Connor, my mental performance coach, Glen Abbey Golf Academy and O'ConnorGolf.ca. Of course, golf spiritual leader and uh, Monday through Friday heard on a another bell uh, station in Hamilton and around the province. Uh, the Humble and Fred show, of course, now going into its uh, I don't even know like 31st year. It's ridiculous, really. Uh, there's a real age theme going on here. <laughs> Not so far. Um, listen, this program, uh, Baked Fresh Every Weekend and Heard um, on TSN, as I mentioned, brought to you by our friends at TaylorMade. The TaylorMade Performance Labs in Woodbridge and Oakville will be open again soon. And now might be a good time to visit TaylorMadeFitting.ca and book the ultimate fitting experience with their master fitters uh timmy you've got your um sim driver already you said yes i do yeah waiting eagerly for my 790 <laughs> irons now you know was it last week we were talking about because i got my irons i did i did my fitting just before the lockdown and it's like having a bike at christmas that you're not allowed to ride <laughs> it's, <laughs> it's excruciating like i just like waggling the nine iron recently going oh baby daddy will be there soon <laughs> Golfers, how, how? What about your lab? Aren't you using in, oh, yeah. in your lab? Yeah, I've got a. Uh, my lab is a mattress up against the wall of our spare room, and I'm rifling nine irons into the drywall daily. Um, but let's um, remind everyone: TaylorMadeGolf.ca. Learn about uh, the fitting, and of course, as Timmy mentioned, the new 790 irons are available. As is the Sim Max and Sim Max OS irons. All right. Um, during this time of the uh, the virus, we've uh, been happy to be able to bring you our show remotely. Tim and I have always been doing the show uh, kind of remotely. On we've been doing you know Zoom meetings as well, probably for at least a couple of years, have we not? At Zoom meetings for at least two, but this whole thing, this lockdown work from home thing, I've been doing it for thirty years. You've been doing it for a long time. Yeah, it's like oh, I just get to stay home more often and feel okay about it. Well, it is something that we hope we're providing a little bit of a distraction. And uh, today, a, a little bit different. You know, <clears throat> excuse me, over the last couple of years, we've had everyone from Sean Foley to Carl Morris to Fred Shoemaker. Mostly we, we talk about the mental side of the game of golf. But today, we'll get to that. But I'm pretty sure our guest today is the first tour player. Is he not the first tour player we've ever had? First PGA tour first player. First PGA tour player. Well, hmm. It, hmm. C- it couldn't be a better guy because not only was, a, uh, was he an elite level player of the game, but he's turned into a very, very good broadcaster, which was no surprise to me because I, I have always gotten a kick out of uh, uh, this gentleman who I was introduced to and became friendly with for a period of time uh, back in the mid-90s. I got a chance to play a little bit of golf with him uh, at his home course, which at the time was Bay Hill. He has uh, won on the PGA Tour and on the 
Well, I'm not sure what they're calling it now. The Corn Ferry Tour, I guess. Uh, yes. Say hello to Robert Damron. Wow. Oh, hello. Wow. Right. I didn't know I was that important. You are. What a what an uh, introduction. You know, In our universe, you are. Sir. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think it was at the end of last week's show. I I was talking about you, and uh, I've been telling a story that involved you and I for the last twenty five or thirty years. I was playing golf with Robert at the National, and I was kind of struggling, and I was getting very, very angry. And Robert had, I think the week before, played with Greg Norman at some event. And uh, about halfway through the round, you know, I was throwing clubs and getting angry. And Robert said to me very kindly, because he's a, a good boy from Kentucky, he said, you know what, Howard? He said, you're a pretty good player, but you're not good enough to get this mad. <laughs> and uh, and uh, he was right. You were right. <laughs> And I've yeah, never. Only when you're sinking your whole life into something is when you get angry with it. You know this for you. I, I saw yours. Uh, you know you love golf and 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 you're a nice golfer, but uh, you know you had another life. Barely. Whereas I had nothing else going on. So <laughs> if I snapped clubs over my knee, it was completely justified. Well, you were right then. Of and course, it, it, it was all part of it was all part of the mental journey to be uh, to be more. Uh, at ease with the game of golf. But let's talk a little bit about, you know, how you developed into a professional player. Because, Tim, um, I mentioned that Robert grew up around Bay Hill. You're originally from Kentucky. How old were you when you moved to uh, Arnold Palmer land? Uh, I was, let's see, six years old. Uh, we, we did the snowbird thing. We did Kentucky in the summers and, and Florida in the winters. But, yeah, I was six. We moved to Bay Hill. Arnold Palmer, of course, owned it. Uh, and the PJ Tour stop started coming here in 79, which was the same year I moved here, I think, give or take. So uh, the tournament, the course, Arnold Palmer was all part of me growing up. It's pretty incredibly fortunate, really, to come from Appalachia, coal mining country in Kentucky. And my dad just got lucky in the business and got out and, and loved to play golf and uh, loved to gamble. So there are a lot of games down here, side games. Uh, and he had some friends say, hey, we're going to uh, take you over to Bay Hill, and Arnold Palmer wants to play some, and he goes, well, okay, you know, and, and he liked to gamble too, so they hit it off right away. We moved here, and uh, and guess what? I'm still here. I still live inside Bay Hill. I'm about a mile from the clubhouse right now. Nice. Mm-hmm. That's a, it's an amazing place to live. For for golfers, Orlando is one of the, the meccas of, uh, of North America. When did you start actually teeing it up? with Arnold Palmer and and what was that like? I remember the first time and I knew him for a while, so it shouldn't have been nerve wracking, but I was 14 years old and there's a shootout, the money game at Bay Hill is there every day. It's what Howard played in when he was and when he came down here. And, and I remember getting nervous and thinking, I know this guy, I've known him forever. I've hit balls with him a long time. Why am I nervous? But I am. And I promptly, uh, uh, you know, put two golf balls onto the driving range, my drive and the mulligan. <laughs> That's right. That's high the, snap it's... hooks. Oh yeah. Just to the left. Just high to snap the left. Hooks and uh, nervous as I could be. And right after that second one went out of bounds, he kind of came up behind me and poked me in the ribs and laughed at me. Uh, he, he knew what was going on. He had, he had witnessed people uh, make bigger fools of themselves on the first tee with him than I did. So. Well, maybe um, why don't we just stop down and explain that every day while Mr. Palmer was there and, well into his later years, there's a group of, of guys, good amateurs, and, a, and a, an array of professionals. At the time, there would be like Len Matisse and a few other tour players, guys like Robert, 
guys like me, Robert's dad, and everyone gathers and throws in some money and plays in a little mini event with Mr. Arnold Palmer every day. Yeah, it was, uh, you know, Scott Hoke used to play in it, Payne Stewart and Corey Pavin played occasionally back in the day when everybody was based in Orlando. Uh, Arnold Palmer, if, if you know golf, you know he's got a little bit of pull. He did. Oh, so, he did. Uh, you know, the, the pros gravitated to here a little bit. So that was that was nice. I got to see and, and know a lot of those guys. But, um, uh, you know, none bigger than him, of course. He was a big boost in my career. I'd say, you know, and, and quickly, Tim, Robert mentioned that he hit a couple balls off the first tee. By the time I played there, and I played it probably five or six times, they in, invoked a rule where there was no mulligans off the first tee. And, and everyone gathered, at least I did, when Mr. Palmer would go to tee off, and I never played with him, although I played with Robert's dad, everyone would go and watch, well, I did, to watch Arnold tee off. And on this day, he wanted to hit another one, and the starter kind of looked at him, and he looked at the starter, and we all realized that he was Arnold Palmer, and he owned the course. <laughs> yeah. So so he was allowed to hit a mulligan that day out of his, uh, out of his 45 clubs he carried, too, which I always thought was funny. Absolutely. Two bags, both chock full. Uh, actually, late in his life, a couple times, uh, he would follow us. He wasn't playing, but he came out and followed us. And he'd take his golf cart right down the center of the putting green, or right at the, um, across the green on the course. And, well, okay. Anybody else does it. Their membership's revoked. Oh, absolutely. There's, yeah. yeah. There's, there's rules for mortals and rules for people like Mr. Palmer. Sure. So the gambling part of it, really cool. Uh, so I read that your dad actually even beat Mr. Palmer a couple times. But um, my oh. question is around how did that environment, even at a young age, of this gambling and competition, how did that help sort of prepare you for high-level competition? There's no question that, uh, you know, when you're a kid and you're standing over a putt that could mean 50 bucks or 100 bucks, which is a fortune to a 15, 16, 17-year-old uh, high school kid, it, it, it's big. It, it gets your juices flowing. There's no doubt about it. And, and I have no doubt that playing in the shootout, not, not just with Arnold Palmer, not even with players better than me, but just the fact that we're all playing for something and where the putts have got to go in. It's not like, I'll pick that up or I'll improve my lie. It, it's kind of tournament rules. So standing over putt, the putt has to go in the hole. There's no doubt that that hardened a young guy into a professional golfer and those, you know, later on when putts meant a lot more that, that, that experience fed into it. There's no question about it. Now we've mentioned that you grew up, I think your family home was just off the 10th hole at Bay Hill. Yep. 10th green. Um, and you were a good player, you know, 14, 15, you start to see Mm -hmm. that you've got some game. Just a couple things. I wondered, did you and your father, discuss you turning pro i know you went to um florida what was um i have it in front of central florida right in fact the the university of central florida just inducted uh, robert into their hall of fame very cool well done a while back Um, a little while back yeah sure and they have a nice jazz station yes ah but i i wonder did you and your because your dad was a scratch golfer a very fine player did you guys discuss turning pro and then maybe seek Mr. Palmer's advice. Did you ever speak to him about the opportunity and what that would be? Um, not. I didn't talk to Mr. Palmer about turning pro specifically. After I turned pro, we did have some some conversations, what I should be doing, what I should be playing, how much work you should do. 
uh, something like that. But I, I will tell you the, the story. I'll try to condense it down. We got lots of time. Uh, okay, great. I essentially uh, lost my scholarship because my grades are so garbage in college. I got <laughs> a one semester extension. Thank goodness. I like petition and they say, okay, one more semester. If your grades get back up during that semester, I showed up, or excuse me, I went six weeks in the middle of semester and never laid eyes on the campus. Now this is before uh, remote campus and stuff. Computers. Okay. So uh, needless to say, my grades continued to spiral. So I, I went to dad and I said, dad, I think it's time I turn pro. This is what I want to do. And, you know, he goes, maybe you should stay in school. And I said, listen, uh, school's not going to let me come back. I don't think I believe I've been uh, ejected from the golf team with my with my grades. So anyway, he says, OK, but he goes in three years, if you don't show signs that you're at least close to making it or, or made it, you got to go back to school. And I said, OK, I will tell you the reason I made it on tour. It wasn't any great talent. It was because in that three years. I got up at 6 a.m. every day, and I mean every day. And I went. I was on the range sometimes before the sun came up. And I would absolutely beat my butt because I was so scared to go back to school. <laughs> that when, by the time I got to Q school, I knew I was going to make it because I knew I had done things that no one else there had done. I knew I'd sacrificed in ways that no one else had. So I'm like, I deserved it. And I got through three years later. Wow. I love it. That, that connects to that Simon Sinek, know your why. You know, I want to be the best I can be. I, I, I want to give back to the world. I don't want to go to school. <laughs> That's it. Hey, fear, fear is as good a motivator as anything. And I was scared to death to go back to school. Oh, that's awesome. So yeah. you, 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 were, you, you grew up around Bay Hill. You got to practice there. You got to see what, you know, how people revered Arnold Palmer, obviously. Was being around some of those other pros that you mentioned, you know, watching Payne Stewart up close or Corey Pavin, um, Len Matisse is a guy I saw there. Uh, did you get to sort of compare your game and did that help you decide to turn pro? At times, um, you know, uh, when I would play with them. But by the time that I was older and had turned pro, I wasn't playing as much at Bay Hill. I'm traveling to go every mini tour event I could but no I definitely tried to get a feel for what they did how they went about their business but I also know that when Payne Stewart or, or Scott Hoke shows up at the shootout sure they're they're playing for their money but they're also decompressing right. off of big golf tournaments as opposed to me where I'm trying to use everything to go up so I didn't see them like really grinding over putts or really trying mostly it was uh, you know especially Payne have a couple beers in the course and uh, uh, you know big tobacco in his lip and just had a good time so robert i gotta ask you you've just turned pro uh 1997 you're playing in your first yep. arnold palmer invitational oh. uh, i read a little bit about that what was that experience like most nervous i've ever been not even close Ar uh, arnold palmer invitational and arnold palmer is the reason i was a professional golfer period i, I watched that was like Christmas to me when I was a kid. Every year the pros came, I would get up early. I'd watch the first groups tee off all the way to the last groups finished. And uh, they called me to the tee, and I remember my chest hurting. And, and my heart was beating so bad, and my chest felt tight. And there were a couple moments in the first three holes where I thought, I'm, like, there's a possibility I might just have to withdraw. Because <laughs> this isn't going away. These nerves are going away. And after three holes, I, I did. I relaxed. And uh, – uh, but no, no question. I, I remember maybe two or three times in, in my golfing career, 
getting so nervous that my last look down to the ball before you pull the club away, I only see white. You go kind of blind. And and the first tee there was one of those times uh, where I look back at the ball and I'm like, I can't even focus on the ball. It's like a, it's like a snowstorm. And uh, but somehow just through sheer instinct and possible luck, I made contact and and parred the first couple and settled down. Wow. So so in future events, did you draw on that experience and experiences like that when you're under duress, if you will? Uh, a little. The fact I finished 11th my my rookie year, which was pretty solid. I mean, I had expectations because every time I played Bay Hill, you know, at home, I was 68 or better. Um and I thought I would play a little better, but I was proud of myself uh, because it was my very first time uh, being there. So um, it's just something that, yes, I, I knew that I'd finished fifth at Doral a couple weeks before and then 11th at Bay Hill. So I knew, you know, you might not know that, oh, I'm ready to win. But listen, I'm getting up on the leaderboard. I can see my name and I'm not backing down. And and when you see your name on the leaderboard and it's there with Colin Montgomery or Greg Norman or whoever at the time, uh, even Tiger Woods, you know, at the time, uh, it, it's, it helps boost your confidence. I, I, I want to just uh, quickly go back to that moment in 1997. Mm-hmm. How, how surreal was it for you? Because when you're playing the back nine, you're walking by the house you grew up in. Probably you were sure. staying with your parents. Did, did it? Did you yes. have? Did you have a moment to kind of go... Like, wow, this I'm actually in the tournament now. And you could probably see your younger self that, you know, waving at tour players as they walk by. There's a uh, there was a, a house, a friend of mine, and he had this big printing company and he, he had put a big sign out. He was on 15 uh, to his pool. It just said, go Robert D. Really big on it. And uh, so anyway, I'm playing on Sunday with Colin Montgomery and we're on 14. And you could see where across the street where 10 was where my house grew up. And I said, uh, you know, it's funny that that house right there, I grew up there. I lived there. I moved there when I was six. And he goes, you're Robert D. He goes, I've seen that sign all week. And I had no idea who that was. I go, yeah, that's, that's awesome. me. I'm, I'm Robert D. Bay Hill's uh, mayor, apparently. <laughs> that's funny. That's you. I wondered who that was. Well, that, that's awesome. So, so there he was. He knows there's a story about who's Robert D and he meets, meets him. So that's, what's really interesting to, to me is that how do golfers deal with the story? Because really there's, there's all kinds of thinking that could go on, you know, Oh, I'm playing my home courses where I grew up. So how do you keep from getting lost in the story and staying on the task of trying to play shot by shot? It's really easy to get lost. Think of it like this. Think of it. Let's say you've got the league going into Sunday and uh, dinner the night before you're thinking about it. You're trying to sleep and you're thinking about it. You wake up the next morning and your tea time's, you know, two o'clock because you're in the lead and you've got all morning to think about it. And when you get on the tee, you're actually relieved that it's over. And you're relieved that the the unknown is over. Now it's in my, it's out of your hands. Now it's in my hands when I get on the first tee and that's going on. So that's that's kind of the way you take it. And and listen, you you pretend it's in your hands to act like a round of golf has something to do with you. There's so much luck and things that can go wrong. I've had days where I played awful and shot 66. I've had days where I was hitting it the greatest ever and shot 75. So, uh, you know, you don't really have control, but at least you're there doing it and you're not just anticipating what's happening. 
So uh, it's not that hard a transition. If you're just tuning in, this is Swing Thoughts. It's great to be with you guys in Hamilton this weekend on TSN. Uh, that's the voice of Robert Damron. Uh, an analyst now on the Golf Channel in our next segment. I want to talk to you about that. I feel like watching me host the puppet show might have had some... No doubt. <laughs> Inspiration. Oh, yeah. Mentor. Mentor. Oh, absolutely. Robert. I, I can only only strive for such heights. Easy now. As a sock puppet. Okay. Easy there now. <laughs> uh, Robert came to watch me tape Ed's night party back at uh, Much Music in the mid-90s. And, and I'm sure you thought, hey, if he can talk to a uh, basically a head cover... I can yeah. do golf analysis. But I want to go back to you were a good college player, better than good. Um, you won five times in college. Mm-hmm. You got your tour card. You played well in tour events, 97, 2000. And then all of a sudden in May of 2001, you win in a playoff over Scott Verplank. Mm-hmm. At that moment, if you can talk a little bit about winning the tournament, but I, I want to get right to the, the moment that you won the playoff. And I think it was four extra holes. It was. Wow. Is it is it a moment of, um, like, you've been thinking about this your whole life. Was that moment, like, sort of amazing, or was it almost like, wow, I guess, is that it? Is that, you know what I mean? Sometimes people experience a letdown. Did you? I, I'll tell you, no, it wasn't a letdown. It wasn't, oh, that's it. But you don't get the chance to enjoy this elation. Uh, it's funny because a friend of mine named Russ Cochran, who was another Kentucky golfer, a one-time winner, yeah. Uh, on tour, he told me before I won, he goes, man, I wish I could win one more time because as soon as the last pup goes in, I'm going to close my eyes and soak it in. Mm-hmm. Because when you win, the here comes whoever, Peter Costas with a microphone in your face. And then they pull you to do another interview. And then they take you to the trophy ceremony. Then you talk to the volunteers. And then you go into the press and you, you talk to the press in the press room. And then the next thing you know, you're in your locker room, uh, cleaning your locker out and going, well, wait a minute, it's over. Everybody's already home. Uh, I'm the last guy here. You know, that that's it. So you don't get a chance to appreciate it on the spot uh, unless unless you win the second time. I agree. I never did. But um, it's it is. I, you know, what's funny. I've had many dreams where I won a second time, and I go, "Finally, I get to do this. I get to enjoy it." <laughs> That's great. But then you wake up, and it's it's all back to you know misery. But uh, well, golf yeah. is misery, really. <laughs> oh, oh, please! It's just they go I hand do. in hand. It's the worst sport in, in the world. Oh, no doubt. I mean, you're just the greatest players of all time. Well, the two best players that ever were, undoubted, Nicholas and Tiger. They both lose about 75, 80 percent of their turns. <laughs> no, they're I the know. two best, and there's not even a debate. Uh, you know, yeah. number three is down the list somewhere behind those two. So, yeah. uh, you know, that's you just have to learn to lose and and take it. Weird. Yeah. So, so going into that playoff, a lot of amateurs would just, who you know, amateur golfers, the type of people who listen to this show, sometimes they look at the okay, there's there's thousands of people around the golf course, millions watching at home. There's all this at stake. You know, if Robert Dameron wins, he's in mm-hmm. next year's Masters, all of that stuff. And a lot of amateurs go, how can he even pull it back? And I I always say, well, they get their reps in. They've been doing this since they were, you know, 14 years old. But I'd like to ask you, how does a golfer on the verge of his first tour win, how do you deal with the nerves? Well, there has to be uh, a bit of arrogance to you to get to that point to where you can win or to be any professional athlete. Um, even now, like going on TV for golf channel 
or hitting a shot. And I, I stink now, trust me, I stink. But hitting a shot in front of a million people wouldn't bother me at all. I think that's just built into the the psyche of a, of a person that goes on to be a professional golfer. And, and you know, it's just that way. But if you do think about it, sitting here right now, like, boy, what would that be like with all those people? It makes you nervous. Yeah. In the moment, not at all. Uh, that's the voice of uh, the Golf Channel these days. He's uh, working on Morning Drive. Uh, and now an official friend of Swing Thoughts, uh, Robert Dameron, going to hold him over for another segment. When we return, I want to talk a little bit about what you mentioned, uh, Tiger, the best of all time, your experiences with him, and uh, how the opportunity at the Golf Channel came about. This is Swing Thoughts. Good to be with you on a uh, virus weekend in uh, southern Ontario on TSN 1150. And uh, welcome back. Great to be with you on TSN 1150. If you're downloading the show, uh, podcast people, don't don't worry. We still love you guys, too. Okay? You've been with us through four years, right, Tim? It's not, We don't have any favorites. We don't favor the radio people. They're just here for the summer. They're just nice for us. No. <laughs> it's uh, always uh, brought to you by TaylorMade. Uh, man, the new Sim and Sim Max fairways experience lower CG and higher launch. Visit TaylorMade Golf to learn about the V Steel Sole and multi material construction. And what was that ball you were using? That you were you just got a whole bunch of new balls. The TP Five Picks, nice the one with like those little icons on it. I've been I've been putting with them in my office. Yeah, it's very cool. You see them just roll over and over. It's it's really cool. Uh, if you weren't with us in our first segment, our guest today, uh, PGA Tour winner and Golf Channel analyst and official friend of Swing Thoughts, a, a guy I met. Back in the mid-90s, we had a mutual friend who played on the Canadian Tour, Kevin Baker. Uh, Robert Dameron is with us. And, uh, man, thank you so much. We had a great first segment, and we're going to hold you over for a little bit. We want to talk uh, a bit more about your tour experience and then the Golf Channel. Are you having a good time yeah. so far? Is this, just, this is okay for you? Are you kidding me? Just sitting in, in a chair uh, talking to the computer. This is perfect. No, I know. Um, Never mind that we're here. The computer's fine. But you're well, with us. It's like you're part of the computer to me, and that's all I can uh, see. You know, right. I sent Robert a note this week. He goes, I'm going to get my kid to show me how this uh, Zoom meeting works. Oh, but yeah. You're doing great. Yeah. Thank uh, you. Now, you, you played uh, your first, uh, you said you played the Arnold Palmer Invitational 1997. Uh, yep. I've got a bunch of screens open. What was, was that the year you turned pro? No, it was the year I got on PGA Tour. I okay. left college and turned pro in 94. Right. Uh, it beat around the mini tours, played Canadian Tour, which is where I got to uh, uh, grace your uh, TV. That's right. At the, the puppet show. And then, uh, um, uh, yeah, so that was that was actually the last thing I did before Q School and, and making Q School was playing Canadian Tour. So you played PGA Tour uh, the year... Uh, Tiger Woods wins the Masters. And so you were kind of the yeah. early cohort of guys competing against him. I have a couple questions. First of all, what would we, as a tour player, 
What was your thoughts seeing him play? Uh, maybe you can make that real for us amateurs. And when did you all know that something special was happening? Well, you know, three U.S. amateurs in a row is special, the way he won them. And, and then coming out, getting the, the exemptions and going on a run of top fives and then winning twice in the very end of 96. That was, you know, so his first full year and my first full, full year coincided, but he had already won twice. You know that's special, but we were in the belief at the time that dominance in golf can't happen anymore. Nicholas was the last, and no one can go out and and think about 18 majors or 70, 80 wins on tour that the – the fields are too deep. Uh, the you know the equipment's so much better, and and everyone else is kind of equal that it just can't happen again. And he proved us wrong. And, and when we knew, I mean, special the '97 Masters, of course, shooting 40 on the front, winning by 12, that was unbelievable. But then he, he kind of went silent for a, a little while, where he kept I mean, silent for him. He was still winning. He had one year, I think it was '98, where he only won once. Mm-hmm. But then. Then going into the Tiger Slam, 2000, uh, I played. So I played in the 2000 U.S. Open at Pebble Beach. I made the cut and I finished last by seven. I put a, the, I started driving it crooked and the, the conditions were so impossible that I threw a couple 84s at them on the weekend. And, uh, you know, it just became comical <laughs> the last 10, 12 holes on Sunday. We're just let's see what can happen. It doesn't matter. So finishing last in that after making the cut so not last last is one of the highlights of me thinking back because i got to play in a tournament on the same course in the same conditions as the greatest golf that has ever been played the greatest golf no one has played golf to that level for one week on a course like that as tiger did pebble beach winning by 15 i'm telling you it's impossible that he shot 12 under and don't forget he made a triple on saturday so uh you know, that's that's that was the icing on the cake. We all mm-hmm. knew he was special, but that was just something no no one could see that coming. I need to ask you, um, so this game focuses a lot on the mental game, quite obviously. Mm-hmm. What did you see in Tiger's mental game that that made him so dominant, or at least you figure it made him so dominant? It's hard to put a finger on what he did because he just did everything right. It's what he did to other people. People like Davis Love, people like Ernie Els, people like Vijay Singh, who weren't used to knowing people are better than them. They're great golfers. People aren't better golfers than them. All of a sudden, this kid's better, and they know it. They don't want to admit it. They just know it. And uh, it made them try too hard. It made them grind too hard. And and it, it sometimes I thought the players that pushed Tiger in a tournament are the ones that almost shouldn't uh, – don't – they, I know I'm not as good as him. I'm supposed to lose. I'm just going to freewheel it. Think of Bob May at the PGA at Valhalla, who, who played great. But Bob wasn't supposed to contend against Tiger mm-hmm. at the PGA. Even even Grant Waite, who was a great player in his own right at the Canadian Open at Glen Abbey, uh, forced Tiger to hit one of his best shots of his career out of that the right uh, fairway bunker on 18 to beat him. And Grant was hanging right there with him. The great players, they folded around him. And that's that's you know unbelievable. Well, and wow. you were and you were a very very good player. I mean, you know, statistically, most you talked about you know Nicholas and, and Tiger and their record, but most people don't win a PGA Tour event. So it's really a it's quite an achievement. But Tiger won eighty one more events yeah. than you. I don't want to make it. I, listen, 
that that's just the way it is, Robert. So what what don't we know as amateurs about the professional game? And then as a professional, what didn't you have, if you know what I'm saying, that that yeah. Tiger had? Well, there. I mean, there are levels. T- Tiger, of course, you know. He was on top. Like when we talk records and stats, I think Tiger should be thrown out because he did, really doesn't compare to anyone else. It's almost a shame that we have to compare him now to who he used to be. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, it just it's an impossible standard. But then there were the great players. Let's say the Fred Couples or Davis Love of, of my time, who to me, when they played, it looked like they weren't trying. I, my analogy was – when a shark's born, it just swims. It doesn't have to think about swimming. It just knows how to swim innately. The great golfers looked like they know just how to do it. And, and the thought of standing over a three iron off a downhill lie uh, and the idea that maybe I'm going to clip this thin and dump it in the water doesn't enter their mind. Because what do you mean? That's not the way I play. Whereas I had to fight each shot to kind of assess how am I going to do this here? How am I going to? Make sure I hit it solid. How am I get so the ball striking was certainly the biggest difference in that that next level. I think I, I know that to win a golf tournament. I I said this to uh, Sean Foley, who you know uh, at Bay Hill, and he agreed with me. He's probably going to steal it, and next time he's on your show, he's probably going to say this. Let him know that it was me that originated it. But to win a golf tournament, you've got to putt well. To get in the Hall of Fame, you have to hit it good. You right. cannot you cannot be a great putter. Only you have to be a ball striker to win a lot and be consistent a lot. But just on my so the second part of my question, you know, mm-hmm. a lot of guys that listen to our show. Tim's a good player. You know, I'm a decent player. I play at a pretty high level. I'm a tournament player, but we've played together. I've played with your your brother, who's a professional. I've played with other tour mm-hmm. pros, and and we all think we can hit quality shots. But what we what don't we get? about the difference with tour players versus, you know, guys like Tim and I that can hit some decent irons from time to time? Yeah, well, I'm going to assume that you didn't spend uh, your entire youth on the driving range the way all of us did. Uh, you know, you didn't put in the the 10,000 hours, so it were, or how many ever, of playing before you even, you know, were out of your, out of middle school, essentially. Mm-hmm. So uh, there is a confidence and, and a, a repetition that comes with all that, you know, putting the time in it as a youth to where it does become second nature and, and so much easier and more simple to where uh, a player does, like I said, does look like they just know what they're doing. Whereas even a good golfer, even a very good, I mean, let's say, let's take the, the club champ at your club or at my club. They're good golfers. Fine. They're one handicap scratch, put them in the U S open. In really tough, put them at Shinnecock, uh, you know, a couple years ago at the U.S. Open with that kind of conditions. They're not breaking 100. I'm sorry. It's just really? not going to happen. I mean, it, no, no. It is just a complete different level, complete different level. Um, it's like, you know, a, a guy on the on the pickup game basketball that, that can dominate you. Put him against, you know, LeBron, and it would be just the biggest joke ever. Uh, it's just a different level out there. So how does the amateur – one thing I want to – how does the amateur and the pro compare in terms of the thoughts they have? And I'm going to give one story really quickly. I remember Jason Day mm-hmm. said that when he got on the 72nd hole of, of the PGA Championship, he said, mm-hmm. I hope I don't hit this into oblivion. 
And then as he stood over his, his approach shot, he says, I hope, I hope I don't hit this into the pond, you know, which like to me is amazing. Here's a guy about to win his first major and he has the same dumb thoughts as, as a professional, but how does a professional get control over those thoughts? What's the process? Uh, I actually learned a, a lesson. It was more like a Zen lesson because every every player, maybe not Tiger, has those those thoughts. I even remember reading about Bobby Jones. He had a six inch putt to win the U.S. Open, and he thought, "What if I miss this? What if I whiff it? Like, what if I stub behind the ball and my putter jumps over it?" So it, it's impossible not to have those thoughts. I can tell you every every single first tee shot I ever hit on the PGA Tour, every one on the first tee, I thought there's a chance I could top this. That would be embarrassing. I never did. But so the, the, the philosophy and what I learned, uh, a friend of mine gave me this analogy. It, those thoughts are just like a leaf on a, on a stream floating by. They're there. Sure. But you don't have to, uh, you don't have to give it any credence. Just let it float by. You notice it. Okay. It's a thought and just let it go on by. Don't, don't put any weight into it. Don't, don't grab onto that leaf and say, why am I doing this? Don't fight those thoughts. Just let it go right on by. It's natural to have them. Well, you don't you think your mind is there to help you, but it's not. It's trying to sabotage you every step. Well, we talk a lot about that on the show, and, and Tim and, and I have spoken to a lot of people. You know, a lot of human beings think their thoughts are them, but they're not. They're just thoughts. Um, mm-hmm. You know, it goes to what Tim talks about people and the stories we create. But, you know, it's funny. I remember once reading somebody saying that if you wanted to be a professional golfer on the PGA Tour, you have to be comfortable with occasionally being humiliated. Because occasionally, Ian Poulter shanks a shot in a tournament, and it just happens. Whereas most people aren't comfortable with that level of examination. Yeah, there's no doubt. I mean, do you know how many in a year, how many uh, people a PGA Tour professional hits? (laughs) <laughs> I mean, it's just it, even the best, you know, even the straightest drivers, if you've got fairways lined with people, you're going to hit them. Yeah. And, and uh, you know, if that's in your head, holy cow. Well, you know, it's funny you say that because recently Kepka on the end of this, uh, the, the tour starting up again, he said, man, some guys are going to lose some balls. Oh, yeah. No question about it. But, well, also, they're going to play with no gallery. Yeah, that's what I mean. So, that's what he was saying. Yeah, he was nobody's like, going to be able to stop it. <laughs> that's right. He was saying <laughs> without a gallery, guys are going to actually lose balls. Uh, this voice is uh, Robert Dameron. Uh, a couple quick that's ones. Funny. Why did you leave the tour? And then how did the Golf Channel opportunity come about? Um, well, I left the tour because I didn't enjoy playing golf. My game started slipping. I really started. Uh, I felt so bad admitting it because golf is so good, had been so good to me. And, and frankly, a PJ tour player might be the most envied job in the world. So I felt awful telling people, I hate this. I don't like doing this anymore. Mm. Everybody was getting better. I was fighting my game. My game was getting worse. I wasn't driving it. Well, I, uh, I went into damn near full driver. yips, not complete uh, meltdown the way a couple did, but you know, I could still make cuts, but I couldn't turn loose on a driver. I couldn't stand there and just, just, you know, take, pick a line and hit it hard anymore. And everybody was getting so much longer, so much better. Uh, I just, I had had enough of it uh, really. Frankly, I won after losing my full status, I won on what at the time was web.com. I think maybe nationwide now corn Ferry tour. And it, it reassured me winning that tournament that I was done. It reassured me that I cannot compete because I made every putt 
I got good breaks. I scraped it around this very firm golf course. I hit it so bad and I hated it. And, and I almost was like, I don't want people to watch me. I'm hitting it so bad. I win the tournament and I know I just got lucky. And I said, that's, that's, you know, almost guaranteed. I, to this day, I wish I'd retired that on the spot, but you know, you can't do that. No. No. And what about the golf channel? I'm oh, sorry, Tim, did you have a question about that tournament? I know you wanted to ask Robert about that particular one. No, we got win. right to it, but I just want to reiterate, uh, the point is so interesting that here it was, Robert wins the tournament. In retrospect, you knew that you got some luck, and sometimes that's what it takes to win, whereas golfers, amateurs especially, are so... They want to hit it right all the time. They want to be consistent, all that good stuff. And sometimes you hit it great and you don't get breaks. Sometimes you hit it bad and you do get breaks. It's so to me, it just reiterates: don't be so invested, don't be so attached to the outcome. Uh, I agree. I, I my goal on tour was really just to leave the course happy every day. I did my job well today. Uh, you know, the results take care of themselves. If that happens and the way I had played, even though the result came, I was not happy with how I played and I didn't enjoy what I did. And when I say I putted great, I mean, I putted unbelievable lights out, just ridiculous. So uh, I, that wasn't sustainable Mm -hmm. and I just wasn't hitting any better. My back was jacked up. So, uh, yeah, it was time to step away. I, I waited a little too long, but. Well, and, and fast forward to this opportunity at the golf channel. You know, knowing you the little bit that I did, you're a very, you know, you're a funny guy and you're a character. You're an easy, you know, hang. You're uh, articulate and uh, you're able to talk about the game as evidenced by today. So how did the opportunity come up? And did, was it just a, did you audition or did they say, hey, Dameron, you're available? You live in Orlando. Uh, yeah, that's right. Yeah, you live in Orlando. <laughs> there's a small part of that. Uh, actually, uh, I started when... So I was full retired for about two and a half years. Uh, you know, you, you drink a little too much, you get fat, and you realize, I got to do something. I got to do something. You know, I'm way too young to just do nothing. So um, I, when Fox bought uh, the rights to the U.S. Open and, and the USGA events, I had a friend of mine that knew people from Fox Baseball, and I said, give me the name of the highest person you got at Fox. I'm going to start making calls. I'm going to audition to get into that i want to start at broadcasting and and what better than a fresh uh you know group that doesn't have any golf broadcasters yet so uh i got in there i did a few tournaments on the digital side i never they never trusted me to go on air uh, on the big fox but joe buck wasn't gonna let me go with him i guess But, (laughs) um, but i did some of the digital so i had a little bit of experience and Frankly, Golf Channel was never on my radar. I, I just thought that, you know, it, it's so hard to go into studio and talk for two hours a day about a game that, you know, it's it's not that fast moving. So, you know, how, how are you going to find topics for the two hours a day, every single day? And uh, eventually I did. I went in and, and talked to the boss. I had a friend of mine introduce me in. And uh, the fact that I'm in Orlando, willing to work, they brought me in and, and just to try out one day. And then they go, oh, we got an opening the next day. Can you do that? Sure. Okay, there's one the next day. And it started rolling. And, and uh, next thing you know, uh, I'm still there. They haven't kicked me out yet. So as an amateur broadcaster, what do you think helped you become a professional broadcaster? You know, I, I, I trust my ability to... 
I don't know, is BS okay to say on air? Yeah, yeah. You know, my ability know to talk. I know, right. I know the, I know the topic. Yeah. So if, if they wanted to go into uh, uh, hockey, I'm going to freeze. I don't know anything about hockey, but I know enough about golf where we can just talk. You can throw any question at me and I'm going to be fine. So I never felt like an amateur. I never got nervous. I never felt deer in the headlights when I started on the show. Um, but, you know, I've had people tell me, you, you've gotten better. You've improved this. You've improved this. And frankly, I don't feel different. I just think it's reps and you do yeah. you do something long enough and you, you automatically get better. Well, I can tell you from uh, being you know, an acquaintance of yours and now a fan of what you do. I think you're, you're right. You're very comfortable. What, what it is. And I think, you know, Tim in the last four years, we've gotten more comfortable doing the show together, but as a broadcaster, I can tell you that that's more than 90% of it. How comfortable do you appear translates to an authenticity and comfort as a viewer? Um, and I also like, I, you know, it's funny. We were talking during the break. I think you're very, very good uh, during live action. Thank you. I like doing that. I like, I, I don't know if I want to see myself do it full time. Maybe, uh, you know, who knows what's going to come out of this, the lockdown when it opens up, how much things are jumbled around, but, uh, I really enjoy doing it, uh, putting myself in that position, you know, on course, especially you walk, you see a lie, you, you there's a tree in your way and, and you kind of assess all the things that are possibilities that could happen. And, and I kind of think it's fun. It's, it's a way to look at it that I didn't look at it when I was playing. Right. Yeah, no, it looks like a lot of fun. But uh, it was just interesting, back to Fox, who was talking about being sort of in your element and not being in your element. It was rather obvious when Holly Saunders was out of her element <laughs> when she asked Jordan Spieth about the playoff. And she says, do you have an outfit for Monday? <laughs> yeah, she got a lot of uh, a lot of flack for that one uh yeah she's she's uh she's been listen interested. holly's side yeah. listen to in holly's defense she has some fine qualities qualities of course um, she does. before we let you go and we end the show because it's been such a pleasure to have you here you know timmy thanks for bringing that up because i wanted to ask robert about jordan speed and, well, I thought and, you wanted to ask I about Holly Saunders. Saunders. No, no, yeah, I, I, know, I know all I need to know I'll about Holly. You, I'll send your number after That's that. right. I, got all, I follow her on Instagram like every other golf fan. Shut your faces. Of course. Um, but I was thinking about uh, Jordan Spieth. And, and when Tim and I were younger, the our generation's sort of poster boy for losing his game would have been Ian Baker Finch, who, you know, won the British mm-hmm. Open, then couldn't hit the fairway at St. Andrews. But just as in our last couple of minutes, as a guy that's probably – been around the kid he's he's a great person but what's happened to his game and do you think for our show is it mental or is it also physical it started physical has become mental um i i think that he probably was working on some part of his swing that never got comfortable he didn't like the change but he made it anyway i'm, I'm speculating but uh, pretty good pretty good uh information i've got and and trying to go back to what you had Sometimes it's, it's not always there either, so that's tough. But I, I think, too, you look at how he turned his putter around. He was putting. I, I went to uh, Aronimic, the BMW. This was a couple years ago when Keegan Bradley won. He beat, he beat uh, Justin Rose in a playoff. And we were following Jordan's group, include, and Roger Maltby was following for NBC at the time, and I was on for PGA Tour. 
and Jordan missed a little short putt. He left it short. And Roger looked over at me and goes, boy, it's in his head now. Everything he does is just in his head. And you could see it. So I think he somehow fixed his putting. His putting's back to being great. But sometimes he loses, especially the driver, he loses it way right. It started off being technical. It's in his head now, I think. And it doesn't mean he can't get it back, but he better get it back quick. You can't flounder like this forever and not let it leave serious mental scars. Wow. That's the hard part, isn't it? It's it's it the psych it's the damage to the psyche. And mm-hmm. just like you said, golf gets often gets harder for people because those scars just keep coming up and it's almost like trauma. No no doubt about it. No doubt about it. I mean you you remember all the bad shots you hit to this day. I remember some of the worst shots I hit far better than some of the best shots I hit. So it it sticks with you. You try not to the trick is not to attach emotion to the bad ones when you hit it. You know, don't get so mad that you remember it. You ingrain it in your mind. Just let it go. All right. Uh, now, that briefly, sounds we, great. Okay, so yeah, briefly, we got to leave good. on a good note with Robert Downey. Uh, yeah. And we, we got to do, do it in who, 15 seconds. Who's impressing oh. the heck out of you now and why? Colin Morikawa. Yeah. Never missed a cut. Hits it like nobody's business. Best iron player on tour, maybe besides Tiger. Robert Dameron, thank you very much. What a great appearance. We certainly appreciate it. I do. It was great catching up with you. And and hopefully, if you don't mind from time to time, we'll reach out again. Anytime. I appreciate it. All right. Uh, Tim O'Connor, O'ConnorGolf.ca. We'll do a little podcast extra, Tim. We can catch up and let everyone know what's going on. Uh, As always, great to be with you on TSN 1150. And brought to you by TaylorMade Golf. Visit TaylorMadeGolf.ca. All right, boys. Uh, Robert, that was great. Let me just... Um, yeah, Robert, are you still there? Let me... Hold on. I'm going to turn yes. the music down. This is like this is like our podcast extra, so we're going to say goodbye to you properly. Um, so what we usually do is when we're done the radio, Tim and I kind of shoot the breeze for a couple minutes after. And um, dang, thank you. That was great, man. What's that? No, okay. <laughs> we do a post yeah. about it. Yeah, we guest. usually do. We go, how was that? That was good. We like Pam. Yeah. Um, <laughs> well, since we have you, I know you got you got to go. But uh, so Morikawa, what about uh, Matthew Wolf? I met him. Uh, good kid. Hits it great. Hits the highest draw you've ever seen. It's really pretty. But uh, man, they're so young now. Hovland yeah. too. Now Hovland is yeah. impressive. I think how young they are. I think Hovland, because I think Morikawa, I think you're right. But I, there's something about Victor Hovland. He just got the right temperament. He looks like yeah. he looked. Well, they all come out more comfortable, even than when you came out in the '90s. There was still a learning curve. No question. No question. Uh, remember when the old saying was, "You really don't peak in golf till you're like early mid 30s." Yeah. Uh, not anymore. Well, yeah. there's that famous interview, and it was played recently, where Curtis Strange says to a young tiger, "Oh, don't worry, you'll yeah. learn." As, you'll learn. Has Curtis ever acknowledged? Just, I mean, it's not his fault. But no, that... all the time, all the time, they rub it in his face all the time. Oh, I and bet. He, he, he accepts it. He goes, "Listen, it doesn't mean he was wrong. No, he just didn't know what he had in front of him. Yeah, exactly. He didn't know exactly. he was talking to no you know did. new Nicholas." I know it. There well, were a lot of next necklaces, but there wasn't really supposed to be one. No, I know. Yet, yet there he was. Well, I'll tell you, it was great catching up with you. Uh, Thanks, I have buddy. such great memories of, uh, and we're still recording, so you know, if you can swear oh, now. Okay. Now we can swear. Mm. But I, I, okay. I, I played um, 
probably, I don't know, less than 10 times more than five in that shootout. And every time I would go to the first tee, even before my time, and watch Arnold tee off, because I was like, this is surreal. Even at that yeah. point, I'd... You know, I'd met some celebrities. I've been interviewing famous people for a long time. But as a golfer, you know, I used to watch him warm up. And I, I always just thought it was cool that he had, like, Timmy, just two giant tour bags worth of clubs he was trying out. You know, playing with your dad. I told Tim last week I played with your father, another guy, and Dow Finsterwald. Yeah. <laughs> it was just weird. There's one of the best names. There's one of the best names in golf. Oh yeah, Did, didn't he have like the stash, the, no, no, no. the omnipresent cigarette, and the pleats? No, 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 no. Wrong guy. Okay. Yeah, wrong guy. Finchroll's a, a a surly old cuss now. I think yeah. so. He's ninety and still doing good. But he's the guy you drive past if you're going like four miles an hour on the street, and he still like shakes his fist at you. Goes, <laughs> Slow down, and you're like idle and pad. Like I can't go any slower. Well, I, I don't know if we told this story on the show or not. Did I tell you after? But I was telling Tim, I, I played in the shootout. I'm playing off zero. And I'm playing with Dow and your dad. And your dad and I were sort of kibitzing back and forth. But I I called him Mr. Finsterwald. But I birdied, yeah. I think I birdied two or three of the first five holes. But after my last birdie, I said, I said something. He says, you can call me Dow. <laughs> I thought that nice. was funny. He kind of gave me the permission to stop calling him Mr. Finsterwald. Good. He had never given me that permission. I well, still call him Mister. Well, listen, sir. Good, to, uh, good catching <laughs> up with you. Thanks, Howard. I, 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 good to talk to you. And I'm pretty much, uh, you know, especially during lockdown now. Well, I, I, if you don't mind, Next from time, time to time, if show. something weird happens on tour, we'll give you, uh, we'll give you a shout. You got it. Thanks, pal. All Thank right, you. guys. Nice seeing you. Nice meeting you, Tim. Bye, bye. Nice meeting you too, Robert. Thanks for making now, time. Now, how to exit out of this? You just thing. You oh, go to leave the meeting. Leave I'll meeting. Remove. There you go. There you go. I'm leaving it. All right, guys. Thank you. All right, man. Bye. Still there? Oh, there we go. Well, there's a couple things that have never happened. We've never done an entire show with one guest. We've never held the guest over for the podcast extra. How do you feel about that? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm in full acceptance. Mode. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Tim, oh, that was great. It's the great allowing. Um, no, it was obvious. It was great. It was a great conversation. And I think that, as you said, at the outset, that was our first PGA Tour player. Yeah. And so I, I don't think that we would, we're trying to max out on the opportunity. It just, you know, there you are. You got a, a, a guy who's a broadcaster, great conversation. It's just a good dude. So we just kept yakking. So that's what happened. Well, I, I liked it because, like I said, for you and I, it's like a little change of pace, especially during the whatever we're calling this the episode, the, the virus, the lockdown. Um, just to get his perspective. And again, he's, he came on tour in 97. And like, I, I loved what he said about just the everyday guys that did well against Tiger, like Bob May, who weren't expected to. Um, whereas some of those guys, like you think about Mickelson, Ells, Colin Montgomery, Davis oh, yeah. Love, Fred Couples, all those guys, that guys Norman, Faldo, they were all the establishment of golf. And then Tiger Woods happened. And it must have been for them, I think what Robert said about, they weren't used to being having anyone better than them. Vijay Singh was not used to not being the best guy ever around absolutely 
Yeah, the, the, the story that I think encapsulates what happened to them is the best one I got is uh, David Faraday told it. And I think it was at Firestone. And so Ernie, Else, and Tiger are playing. And Tiger's in the rough. He hits a four iron from the rough that lands about three feet away and sticks. And the rough was kind of like close to maybe close to ankle deep. And on the broadcast, you hear, fuck. <laughs> <laughs> and the producer goes into Faraday's ear. Was that you? He goes, nope. It was Ernie. <laughs> <laughs> you know, because that's what Tiger would do to them. Yeah. So he would just he would just hit these shots that only he was capable of. And they were just going like, I can't compete with that. Well, I, it's funny you use that phrase. Uh, I worked uh, at the Edge for a lot of years. I'm not sure if you knew about that, but then I went over to. Uh, oh yeah, everyone I know, knows. I know. I'm, teasing. I'm teasing. Humble Howard. I'm at teasing. The edge. I'm teasing. All right. I don't know if you know about that, but then we went to a radio station. We went to a talk station in 2001 called Mojo Radio. So it was all guys That's talking right. about guy stuff and sports. One of the one of the guys. At the time, who was doing another shift, used to make fun of me all the time because I was already in 2001, 2, and 3, a, a tiger nerd, you know, and uh, he was always mocking me and mocking the fact that announcers would say things like, well, there's a shot that only Tiger Woods can hit. And this was when Tiger had only won 25 times. And he used to mock, you, oh, only Tiger can hit. But then a few years later... You know, after he'd won, you know, 14 majors, I remember running into him again. He goes, all right, you were right. You know, because <laughs> at some point, Tiger Woods will just, even the harshest critic, defy a moment like the one you just described. The one that Robert Dameron talks about, the shot in Glen Abbey. Like, there's a guy, Dameron, who maybe played the Canadian Open a couple times, but that shot's part of golf lore now, you know? Mm -hmm. Like the chip on 16 at... At the Masters, when the ball just falls in, I'm like, like, how do you explain that all that could happen to one human being? Oh, absolutely, yeah. And and you got to know, it's, it's like the data backs it up. That's the thing. Like in terms of like the record, um, you know, and you look down like that. We were fortunate enough to go to the Scott Fawcett uh, seminar, and it was really interesting because he. Uh, Scott Fawcett is a mathematician. I think he said he had like at least one math degree, maybe mm -hmm. more. Yeah. And he said that he had analyzed ti every shot Tiger hit for nine years. And from that, he decided, he saw that Tiger was the best course manager maybe in the history of the game because he, he always played, you know, to the far side, the fat side. He never hit a shot that, that was basically he would penalize himself. And it was through looking at that data, you could see why, how it all added up to 82. Is it 82 now? Yeah, 82. Well, yeah, I, you know, like, um, it's funny because I was having a conversation with our boy Paul Doolin uh, about Scott Fawcett, actually, about decade golf. And we were just talking about, you know, I don't know, silos of improvement for me. And he said, you know, just go back to what you learned from Scott Fawcett because... You know, that's all you really need. That's the course map that is there so you don't have to decide in the moment what to do. Because I remember that one of the revelations for me, at least, and I think maybe for you too, was Scott's data showed that it's not the birdies you make. It's the three putts you don't make, and it's the penalty strokes that you don't incur in a round that really make the round. 
You know, and I think what you said to Robert, we we all as golfers have this notion that we're supposed to be perfect all the time, but it's not. No, absolutely. And I thought that was so cool that Robert hit on that because that to me was a revelation when I heard it from Scott Fawcett. And it just keeps getting reinforced. And I think the gift we could take from that as, as amateur golfers is just to relax a bit. Mm-hmm. You know, sometimes you hit the ball great and you get a bad bounce. Sometimes you hit it bad and it goes in. I remember one time having about a five-foot putt. I think it was number seven Blue Springs. And I read it, hit the putt, and, and it went – and it was like, what? I thought, <laughs> I thought it was right to left. And it went left to right and went right in the hole. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> you know, or you hit this dead pole and, oh, it finishes a foot from the hole. You know, it's funny, Marty Chuck, who I was uh, hanging out with in uh, in February in Phoenix, you know, he had a way of describing it. And I know we've said it like this differently, but the same. But he said, you know, there's only three things. You know, it's good, bad, or indifferent. Those are the three choices of, a, those are the three outcomes of a golf shot. Was it good, was it bad, was it indifferent? And can you live with those results? Because what you just said, I think, is a big stumbling block for a lot of us amateurs that... You know, Rattella's book was called Golf is Not a Game of Perfect for a reason. Because we try and be, well, it's also what I think you do so well in your other work, which is, you know, we're not we're not meant to be awesome all the time. No, and, and actually, it's in the dark moments. That's that's where the gifts are for us. And we, but we don't like dark moments. We like keep those away. No. <laughs> we don't want any bad shit going on. But it's when the bad stuff goes on that we we. It's through those experiences that you know. It sounds so hoary to say, but that's where we grow. Yeah. No, it's not. That's where we find out how capable we really are. But golfers spend so much of our time trying to avoid pain. We do it as human beings, and that's why. You know, that walk from the range to the first tee turns us into a different player because, you know, we talked about this with uh, Synergy Golf, uh, Paul um, Cummings. Cummings. You know, we don't practice with consequence. We don't practice in the field of play. And the first shot of any consequence turns us into perfection-seeking rageaholics. <laughs> Exactly. And and that's never too good. No, no it's not. <laughs> right. oh, yeah, absolutely. Well, you, you can use that too. Use that if you want. I think I will. I, and I will even footnote you. But that's, if you look at what is perfectionism, where does that come from? It's from fear. Yeah. It's from fear that we're going to make a mistake. We're going to be judged. We're going to compare ourselves to someone, find ourselves wanting all of that, uh, you know, little kids, short pants, got in trouble with daddy, whatever. That's where perfectionism comes from. And so it's kind of a cognitive thing to see <clears throat> where it's at. But it's being able to just be aware of that that's what's going on in the background. And if I can just kind of come back to task at hand, best I can, just best I can do and live with it. Really, that's, that's that's really all you can do. And I love some of that perspective that Robert was was giving us. That really, all you can do is is the best you can do. And some days it works out, and some days it doesn't. But you're still the same person. Yeah, you're still the same good person. Ugh. You know, um, just to I'll tell you my last thought, and then you can wrap it up. But uh, I've noticed again from watching golf 
this spring before it was canceled and watching kind of rerun golf. One of the things, even as a good player myself, that I didn't really quite get is that tour players, you know, they don't always hit a, a chip or a pitch to three feet for their up and downs or their up and ins, as they say down there. That sometimes, you know, the, the best they can do is because of the difficulty of the slope or whatever, that they might get it to five or eight or ten feet, and that's the best they can do in that moment. And I thought to myself, why do I beat myself up then if oh, yeah. I don't hit it to a foot so that I can tap it in? Because sometimes my mindset, and this might be relatable for others, is that I have somehow failed unless I hit it stone dead. But I noticed from watching, I've noticed this, I started watching for how close they don't hit it and get it up and down. Because what they do is they go, okay, I did that, and now I'm going to do putting. Whereas mm -hmm. with me sometimes, I'm still a little bit annoyed that I didn't hit it closer. Yeah. Well, I think part of it, too. So it was interesting. Robert talked about the arrogance to be able to tee it up in front of thousands of people and know there's millions of people on on. Uh, on TV. So if you get your reps in enough, you, you know what that's going on, but there's also getting your reps in dealing with consequence. You know, you're going to have enough times where you, you miss a three foot putt in high level competition. Well, guess what? You go to bed, you wake up the next day. Oh, I'm not dead. <laughs> that's right. <laughs> no one's, you know, maybe there's a few, you know, these days, maybe there's a few uh, people uh, making disparaging comments about my character, but even that doesn't matter either. We just keep rolling on. I mean, I think of how many times did Rory McIlroy, in, in before he kind of had his resurgence, he's got his putting, he's lost his putting, he's got his putting, he's lost his putting. He kept rolling on, kept rolling on. And I think that's the, really, again, it's more of the, just we do the best we can and roll on. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, always a great conversation. Thank you, sir. Uh, O'Connor. Yeah, this is fun. This is a this is a great day. It's a really fun to, you know. I got to, uh, you know, I've as a journalist, as a golf writer, I got to spend you know time in news conferences and every once in a while I'd ask two or three questions. You don't often get about you know an hour and fifteen minutes or so with a PJ Tour player. So this was a this was really fun. And I knew you'd like him. He's a good guy. He's, uh, he's got a great oh, yeah. vibe about him. And you know what? He's sincere. Like. You know, we should we should grab them once or twice before the, the season's over. And, and you know, if we have something like, I don't know, in the middle of the summer, if there's something that happens, I know that he'd be willing to come back on for a quick hit. And uh, and I mean what I say. I think he's a, he's a very good broadcaster. Oh, absolutely. And I think yep. he's very good on the golf course. Like, as I listen to uh, PGA Tour Radio on Sirius XM, and I so I hear him in the early rounds, and... He's got a good way about him because you, you respect his experience, but he's also able to communicate it. That's the key, yeah, is, is that ability to to, uh, to to talk to the common person about what's actually going on and rather than uh, having all this insider stuff, but if you sound like a dweeb who can't connect, there's no point to it. No, true. Hey, quickly, um, as we're recording this on the 1st of May, I don't know when you guys are downloading it, but... Uh, uh, it seems like Ontario might be one of the last provinces to open up for golf. Saskatchewan is. Alberta is. Yep. In fact, I was surprised to hear that Quebec, uh, which has even more cases than we do, uh, is opening up, I think, on the 4th or something like that. 
I've heard the same, yeah. What, I think uh, that's what, when their state of, Quebec's state of emergency is done. So Ontario's is scheduled to end on the 12th. But the rumblings I'm hearing is that this thing is going to be in Ontario extended to the end of May. Um, I hope I'm wrong. But this, is it I just because of, of density and population? I understand. That's what I'm hearing. Yeah, it's, it's, it's just there's a lot of people who live close together <laughs> in Ontario. So I, I actually, you know, this doesn't win me any friends in the golf industry, but I, I applaud the caution. I do. We eventually will get out. No, I um, know. I, 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 I kind of, uh, you know, I get it. I mean, obviously, I'm chomping at the bed. And as every week goes by, another tournament that I was either going to play in or a qualifier gets canceled. And I'm okay with that. I, you know, I would, I would uh, I'd really like them to open up a range or two. But, uh, yeah. but I get it. You know, better, you know, let's be safe than... Sorry later, you know? Yeah, but I really worry about a lot of lot of golf courses, like the mom and pop courses and things. Yeah. Wow. Like I, I read a piece in uh Ian Hutchison's Golf Now Golf News Now that some golf courses in northern Ontario, man. I mean, they work on you know, yeah. slim margins as it is when they're able to take money in from like say, you know, late April to November. Wow, I don't know, but the survival is going to be—it's going to be really tough. On the um, on the humble and Fred broadcast this week, we spoke to uh, the president of the company, <clears throat> excuse me, that owns uh, all the Jack Astors and the Scatterbush. It's called Service Inspired Restaurants, and you know that industry is going to be devastated. It's talking to like 25-30% of all restaurants in Canada will never open again. To give you some perspective, he said there's seventy thousand restaurants in Canada and about 30% of those will never open. Yeah, and all these people have made a living as, you know, as servers, you know, oh, where yeah. do they go. It's it's really scary. Uh I was thinking about well this morning Sandy and I were talking about what about like just places like Indigo, all those stores, all the people who work there. Yep. I mean, when they reopen, it's not going to be like everyone's going to flock to the mall and, you know, into you know, Radio Shack or whatever it's called and and to buy books, it's going to be a slow trickle. But meanwhile, these places have such overhead. Yeah. Rent and, oh, my God. Well, that's uh, very similar to what Fred and I were talking about in terms of with this guy. His name is Paul Bogner. And, um, you know, let's say like a Jack Astor's is near Sherway, speaking of Indigo. Right across the street is a Jack Astor's. It's a very busy restaurant. And let's say June 1st they're allowed to open 50% capacity. Like, even he understands that a lot of people are still going to be reticent to go into those places, even though it's now technically allowable. Oh, yeah. Now, you're not going to go that, you know, a lot of people, would you take your 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 newborn, Would you, even your four-year-old kid, would you take your, 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 your dad who has respiratory issues? That's right. Wow. You know, you got, you know, your, your partner who's a, a cancer survivor. Wow. So in, in terms of that, you know, the rest of the world is, you know, golf is just one of the very many things that have been affected. I have a friend of mine. One of my best friends is flying. It's a long story, but he's been stuck in France for the last 45 days. Mm. And so he is he left there this morning and I, I was up early. He sent me a, a picture of the Paris airport. And it's like. 
that's like post-apocalyptic. So he sent oh, me two pictures. One is the, I guess it would be like the main concourse area, deserted. And then he sent me a picture of the, you know, the overhead uh, screens, monitors that show the flights. There was like three flights on that board. Wow. I know. Yeah. Well, you know what? I just think that, you know, eventually we'll look back at this in history in the same way. You know, it was very interesting. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, I watched the, the movie about Churchill, Darkest Hour. Mm-hmm. you imagine being like in that week that that, you know, France was overrun, Belgium, Holland and everyone in England thinking about, oh, my gosh, we're next. We could be invaded. Well, England rebuilt and 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 every, got on with it, and we'll get on with it. But it's it's going to be painful and it's tough. And so, I just hope that all of us, um, you know, to me, it's just like connect, uh, support others best we can. You know, just think of others. I think, and that's part of what got us in this mess. I think is that um, kind of just a lot of looking out for number one. Well, I wrote this down, and I talked about it on my uh, other show, but um, I think this time has really shown us there's a difference between what we need versus what we want, Mm -hmm. because we've all learned to live with a lot less, a lot of it, just the basic needs, and golf is something we want. I mean, you could argue it's something I need, but it is just something, (laughs) it's something we want, you know, by now... You know, it's a beautiful day. This weekend's supposed to be 21. There would be lots of golf courses for us to choose from. Probably most of the club link courses would be open by now. Yeah. But you know what? Yeah. It, it's only something we want. And what we need is to keep away from one another for a few more weeks to make sure that we, we can start to mitigate this. But as you say to me, this is going to be something that we're we're dealing with for a while. And then it'll be behind us. Yeah, and we'll take our learnings just the way we did from from all these these major events. But you know, interest just quickly, um, the blog that I posted today, uh, Friday, um, was about. I think a lot of us looked at what we demanded from the world, and now now it's our turn. Like, how's the world going to serve us? And now we got to now we're figuring out. Okay, how can I serve the world? What's the different thing that I can do? In in all facets of my life mm-hmm. kind of big but i think it starts even with i wrote it even starts with just saying thank you to the grocery store cashier thank you for working you know and i reference you in that piece i won't tell you i'll let you read it okay i will <laughs> um well listen man uh hey um on your tuesday zoom professional meeting like i just i don't know where i found like is that was that mike mart's youtube video part of that because it was just the two of you i thought yeah, well, what happened was, well, as you can imagine, so I wrote Mo's biography, The Feeling right. of Greatness. Mike Martz was our, was Mo's best friend. And so so it was kind of a Mo-fest. And the idea was, you know, I'm going to have Mike on, and I'm going to ask him, okay, uh, playing with Mo all those years, hanging out with him, driving him to Florida and back, all that. What did you learn about playing the game and coaching the game? And I invited, there was like, about 25 people on the call and I invited them to ask questions. Well, I guess it was, it was working. <laughs> Mike and I just kept going and going and going. I just kept asking him questions. But, and so, people told me it was fascinating. 
So were they, I'm going to watch it. Was, was there other people on the YouTube video, or was it just the two of you? Oh, it was a Zoom call. That's, oh, okay. I just restored. I just recorded the Zoom call. No, I understand. But it looked like it was just him and I because our questions. And I kept asking people for questions. And you know how people are who are not used to speaking out in public. They were reticent. But I asked some questions that came to me from chat. And and oh, Paul Cummings, uh, he 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 came on and he asked a few questions of nice. of Mike. Yeah. So it was really really fun. But it was really interesting as we were saying goodbye to everybody. It was almost like every person who came on that call put a chat, thank you, Mike and Tim, to some degree. Nice. Well, but it was, and people told me it was fascinating. George McNamara said that could have gone on for three hours. Well, I'm going to go watch it. I want everyone to uh, check it out. It's, uh, just go to O'ConnorGolf.ca and, and you'll find the, uh, the video. Well, it's on my YouTube channel. On the YouTube channel. Yeah. Um, if you keep inviting me, one of these days I'm going to show up, Tim. Well, that'd be even great. though, even like, though hey, I'm not a technical professional, well, I told everyone I've I've like opened it up. I said, you know what? I start sending this out to my my database, put it on my website. You know what? The the thing's called coaches coaching coaches. So what what coaches can learn from each other? And I said, you know what? This be pretty cool. The golf nerds listen to this. It's fascinating what yeah. golf professionals think about, uh, what they coach, what they're learning. Really interesting. There's a huge learning curve for golf pros right now about how do they communicate, how do they, uh, how do they get their message out, what is their message, yeah. how are they building their business. Well, and I think just from a purely instructional aspect, I think we're at kind of a nexus where – it's become obvious to almost everyone that's interested in this game that the way it's being taught once and for all has to change because now with social media and video and YouTube videos and online learning and it, it's obvious to everyone that amateurs aren't getting better. So what's the solution? You know, we're not. Exactly. They're not getting any yeah. better. No. And and no no offense to all the nice people we know that teach the game of golf, you know this particular period we're in the virus. You know, like when Club Link does open up, they're not going to be opening the range for um, teaching in phase one. So what pros are going to have to do is do a lot more on course teaching, and I think that's the answer. You know, like, why would you be teaching somebody to play a game away from the place where the game is being played? Oh, exactly. That's Carl Morris has said that a number of times. Golf's the only sport that he's aware of that we do not practice on the field we play. Right. That I mean, that, what a, it's kind of common sense, but very insightful on Carl's part. But that's really where a lot of the best coaching happens. I started to do a lot more of that last year. And you can make a big difference. I remember playing with this one younger guy compared to me. He's younger. He's like everyone's years. younger than we are. <laughs> yeah. He pulls out driver all the. He's pulling out driver all the time. And these yeah. lines he would take. And I said, dude, if I caddied for you, I would reduce your score by at least seven shots. Absolutely. <laughs> well, listen, man. Um, I hope we get out to play at some point. You and I. Yeah. You never Absolutely. know. It could happen. It could happen. <laughs> uh, all right, man. That was uh, fun. Yeah. I'm, gonna, I'm just trying to think of something to play here at the end. Uh, 
You know what I like? I want you to look this up. It's it's uh, really cute. It's a bunch of um, um, British or UK pop stars, most of whom I don't know, but it's their version of the Foo Fighters song, Times Like These. I'm going to play it. Oh, awesome. As we finish out here today, it's a Foo Fighters song. Make sure. Why is this not working? And I'm oh. just going to, and once we're done, I got to split. Yeah, yeah, gotta, man. Yeah, I, actually, I can't play it because I'm, my my Spotify is being paired to my dining room speaker upstairs. Okay, it's a long story. <laughs> hey, man, listen, great chat, and uh, I might yeah, uh, pop in on Tuesday. I've all, should I come in disguise? What do I? Am I going to get in trouble for not being a golf professional? Uh, come in uh, as you are. You'll be welcome. <laughs> okay. Absolutely. All right, brother. Talk to you soon. Cheers. Bye. Get a shiver in the dark. It's a